Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Above the Mean, a podcast for individuals who want to pursue their passions and learn with me as we grow our mindsets to reach those passions. I'm your host, Veronica Thompson. It feels so good to be back, and I'm sorry I stepped away for so long, but your girl was going through some serious internal struggles that I will definitely divulge with you all in next week's episode. Um, But I pushed through. I tapped really into my resilience mindset. I think, honestly, it's not that things get easier the more you do them. I really believe that it's your tolerance just gets higher and you're kind of able to push on. And I definitely think that this guest is a perfect example of having a resilience mindset. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to the incredible Ann Grady, a two-time TEDx speaker and best-selling author who focuses on the theme of resilience. Really get into it, we touch upon her amazing journey and testimony, as well as talking about using discomfort to establish growth and how to develop new healthy habits and just so much more. I really hope you get as much out of this convo as I did. And so without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, today I am joined by the lovely Anne Grady, two-time TEDx speaker and best-selling author of three books. And thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. You truly are an inspiration. Your story is incredible. Oh, I'm honored to be here. I'm, I'm grateful to have an opportunity to chat with you. Uh, you're so sweet. You inspire and educate people to transform their lives and living courageously and resiliently. For our listeners who may not quite be as familiar with you and your story, do you mind sharing some of your story to help give some insight? Absolutely. Sure. So, you know, I did all the things everybody does. I went to college and then I was thought, well, I'll get a master's and, and I've got it all figured out. And that's great until you don't. Um, when I, you know, I thought I was just kind of on the on the path, but then I, I got pregnant with my son, Evan, and knew something wasn't right. Um, when he was born, you know, the nurse joked with me that he was the crankiest baby, angriest baby she'd ever met, which isn't what a first time parent wants to hear. (laughs) And after a very long road and a lot of challenges, um, Evan was diagnosed, basically he was hospitalized the first time when he was seven years old in his first pediatric psych hospital. He had tried to kill me when he was three by the age of four, he was on his first antipsychotic. And so we have been on a journey for his last 19 years um, to really try to figure out how to help him. And we have a diagnosis of severe mental illness, autism, developmental delays and disabilities. It's just got this perfect neurological storm. You say up, he says down, you say right, he says left, you say no, and it ends up into a knockdown drag out kind of adult tantrum. And so it was interesting because I was, I found myself as a single mom, his father left when he was 18 months old. So I was trying to build this consulting practice and be a motivational speaker while at the same time going through all of these things behind the scenes. And it was just exhausting. And it took a toll on me health wise in 2014, shortly after um, he was released from his second hospitalization. I was diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland that resulted in facial paralysis. Um, and then I couldn't close my eyes. So I scratched my cornea. And right before they implanted a gold weight into my upper eyelid and stitch up my bottom eyelid before I started radiation, uh, I fell down a flight of stairs in Las Vegas and broke my foot in four places. So it has been a resilience journey, but I've really I'm a, I'm a researcher. And so I dug into the data and the research trying to understand is, is this some genetic gift that some people have, or is it a set of skills and habits that you can practice and build? And so I was pleased to find out that it is nothing more than a muscle. It is a set of habits. It's a set of skills. It's a set of beliefs that when we practice these build our capacity to absorb the, the tough parts of life, which we all experience. And now I know you also do a lot of speaking events for some pretty major companies like Dell, Mm -hmm. Hallmark, Google, just to even name a few. And you help these teams build resilience. Can you share with us some of the tools and strategies that you use to help these individuals and companies adapt a resilience mindset? Sure. So it's it's a framework that I follow. It's it starts with your mindset, then you have to cultivate a skill set, and then there's this ability to reset. So 
your mindset is understanding. A lot of us think like if we're not happy, there's something wrong with us. We live in this culture that just kind of magnifies this desire to be happy, but your brain's job isn't to keep you happy. It's to keep you safe. So there, it's okay to not feel okay, right? Happiness is an emotion just like any other emotion, but understanding that we can truly shift the way our brain processes to make it work for us instead of against us. You know, the, the beauty is our brain wants us alive. The, the downside is it doesn't care how it achieves that. So it's designed to make us focus on what we don't want, what we don't like. And we shape these stories that we tell ourselves about our lives and our experience. It's called your explanatory style. And so we have to shift that story because when you do that enough, when you shift the way your brain behaves, that becomes its new way of behaving. It becomes its default pattern. So the more often your anxiety-related pathways are activated in your brain, the easier it becomes for those to stay activated. We have to be really deliberate about the mental habits that we cultivate um, so that the right ones become habits or cognitive shortcuts. The skill set, these are ways to either, you know, we basically have two choices when it comes to resilience. We can either minimize and reduce the number of barriers, obstacles, challenges, potholes in life, or we can build our capacity and our buffer and our resources so we can absorb them. And so the skill set are really just a handful of, well, more than a handful, but lots of skills that help uh, signal safety to our brain so that we're cultivating um, the, the right resources to help us absorb it. So for example, Gratitude is the number one predictor of well-being and a huge determinant of resilience. And thousands of studies document the physical and mental health benefits of it. And what's so great is you don't even have to find anything to be grateful for. The simple act of looking for something to be grateful for drops cortisol, the stress hormone, by 23%. So you can reprogram your brain out of this mother nature created this negativity bias, right? And it's our propensity to magnify the negative and minimize the, or minimize the positive. And it's a protection mechanism, but it doesn't serve to help us improve our mental health and well-being. So these are, that's an example of a skill set. Mindfulness is another social connection, self-care, all of these specific strategies to help us build our capacity. Um, and then the reset is literally how do you tap into the, pow the power of your nervous system to reset it? Because we when we're excited or happy, the same part of our nervous system is activated as when we are anxious and scared. And the only difference is the way your brain interprets it. So we have like these two parts to our nervous system. You've got your sympathetic nervous system, which is called fight or flight, but it's the same exact part that gets activated. If I just said, Hey, Veronica, you just won the lottery. You don't have to ever work, right? That would be the same part of your nervous system that's activated. The only difference is your brain's interpretation. The parasympathetic is your rest and digest. It's responsible for reproduction, salivation, digestion, metabolism. And so anytime our brain faces a threat and it can't tell the difference between a real threat like a global pandemic or a perceived threat like a snarky email, anytime our brain faces a threat, it shuts down the parasympathetic response, which is why it's easier to gain weight. It's harder to conceive. You're more likely to have stomach issues and digestion issues. So we can actually take control of our nervous system intentionally and purposefully. Um, and it's just a skill. And, and that has become really helpful for me. I really like that. I really like how you kind of break it down and you look at it. I mean, from the neuro, the neurological standpoint of it and really just seeing that, yes, it is a skill. So it's something that we have to practice over and over. It's mm -hmm. like, working yep. out, you can't just expect to get rock hard abs, rip body <laughs> and not put in the work and actually do the things to contribute to having that. And, and so right. I like that you said that it basically goes back to gratitude, which you're right in the sense that gratitude doesn't always have to be positive. I think someone recently told me that gratitude is simply just acknowledging what is and like accepting it. Yeah. So I, I see those as two different things. I, I think acceptance is acknowledging what is right. And, and so I have these mantras that I tell myself all the time to shift my story when it has a propensity to dip to the negative. Most people try to go from negative to positive, like this sucks to this is awesome. And your brain won't believe you, but you can go from this sucks to it is what it is, or you can go from I'm exhausted to I'll figure it out. Um, and so I believe 
acceptance is really accepting what is. Gratitude is finding what's right. It's mm -hmm. dialing in your lens. It's looking through almost gratitude glasses, if you will, not rose color glasses, not pretending the negative stuff doesn't exist, but our brain defaults to looking for what's wrong instead of looking for what's right. And so gratitude is the way you shift and train that. And unfortunately, just identifying it isn't enough because your brain doesn't need to hold on to it for protection. The way you use gratitude to change your neural structure is something called savoring. So I call any moment that is a really great moment, a delicious moment. They're the moments that we rush past in our search for happily ever after. It's the, you know, it's a great hug or a delicious meal or your first sip of coffee or um, a warm, fuzzy sweater when you're cold. Like it doesn't matter what it is, but the, we take these little things for granted. And so the research says that if you want to embed that into your neural structure and change the way your brain processes the world, you have to savor that, meaning when you have a good moment that we normally rush past, you sit in it and you internalize it and you feel those good feelings for 15 to 20 seconds. And that permanently embeds that into your neural structure. And when you do that over time, that shifts the way your brain processes and perceives the world. Um, now, let's say you wanted to start a gratitude habit, right? Well, it's hard to start a new behavior. When I had facial paralysis, people were like, you should start a gratitude habit. And I thought, I don't have time to journal. Like, I don't have time for that. Um, but there's a concept that SJ Scott came up with called habit stacking. And it means that you're more likely to stick with a new behavior, for example, a gratitude practice, if you attach it to a habit you already have. So, for example, I brush my teeth twice a day, every day, like clockwork. It's just a habit. That's really I attach good. my gratitude. <laughs> I attach my gratitude habit to brushing my teeth. So every day when I brush my teeth, I think of three small, specific things that I'm grateful for. Your brain likes novelty. So if every day you're like, my family's happy and healthy, your brain stops paying attention to that. So it could be, I'm grateful I have toothpaste because my breath stinks when I wake up. Or it could be like, I have running water that's clean and drinkable, right? They don't have to be grand things. They're the little things that we just kind of rush past in our search for happily ever after fairy tale endings. I really love that. And it's funny you say that because I actually recently got a tattoo that it's um it's from a movie called Zombieland. I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh -uh. but it's basically the tattoo is called rule number 32. And essentially what it means is to enjoy the little things. And I got it because I wanted a reminder just to be present because I feel like a lot of times we get so caught up and like we try to capture the moment by either filming it, taking pictures, but doing that, we're not actually living in the moment or we're trying to make everything perfect when I think the perfect thing would be to just be present. I got my first tattoo at the age of 47. Um, and it's the same thing. It's a, well, it's not the tattoo from Zombieland. It's, <laughs> it, I, don't, I don't even know if you can see it. It's just like a thin little, oh, thing. Yeah. It's, called a, it's called an unalum. And it's just a Buddhist symbol that helps kind of navigate through adversity up through peace and kind of your path to just find that and, and center. So for me, I did the exact same thing out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And to circle back to your book, while reading your your books were really great. I read your book strong enough, and I'm listening currently to the audio for your third book. While reading your books, there were times when I honestly didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It was almost as if I was watching Uncut Gems all over again because there was just so much unluckiness and so much chaos. But there was there were a lot of great quotes from your books. And one that stuck out to me that you kind of touched upon was when you said you're either green and growing or ripe and rotting, basically talking about how we as people respond to challenges where either accept our challenges and remain open to learning lessons or we resist our opportunities to grow. Can you give any advice to someone trying to grow? Yeah. So growth is uncomfortable, right? It, it, when you are learning something new, whether it's learning to sit in quietness or whether it's learning how to play a sport or whether like right now I'm taking horseback riding lessons. Ooh. When you learn something new, it's really uncomfortable and people don't like to feel discomfort. And it's actually your brain forming new neural pathways. It's actually really healthy to continue to push yourself to learn things, whether it's a language or an instrument or a hobby. 
And what that does is it, that discomfort is really actually your brain stretching and growing and building these new habit patterns. And so a lot of people I find just get really comfortable being comfortable and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you're not growing. So you have to kind of choose, do I want comfort or do I want growth? And sometimes for me, the answer is I want comfort. Like there are absolutely times like right now it's the end of the year. I've given over 300 keynotes this year, training sessions. I'm just kind of tired, right? And so I'm thinking about all these ways to grow and develop my business and things I can do personally to grow and develop. But like I'm taking the next two weeks to just sit in comfort. And that's okay as long as you're doing it deliberately, right? Because you're either you're either helping yourself develop new tools, skills, and ways to navigate the constantly changing, challenging world we live in, or you're staying stagnant. And I view resilience as a way to use that discomfort as a catalyst for growth, to extract meaning from the stuff that you've gone through. The average person experiences five to six traumas, right? So how do you tap into that and extract meaning? So for example, did I want to have a child who struggles as much as Evan? Of course not. He has a very difficult life. And by proxy, we have two. But I would never would have talked about mental health. I never would have talked about my own mental health journey. I never would have written three books and donated a portion of all the proceeds to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I never would have created a business around mental health and well-being. So it's, yes, stuff happens and you can't control it a lot of the time. But how do you use it to propel you forward instead of drowning in the heaviness of it? That's Yeah, you basically are looking at it you're looking at the lessons that you're looking at the life events that happened to you and you're looking, choosing to look at them as lessons rather than just dwell on the negative. And you can't see it while you're in it. Just so you know, it's not like I'm able, there are lots of things that you're going through right now and you're like, lesson, there's no lesson in this. This is just crappy. It's when you look back with perspective, when a year, five years, 10 years goes by and you're able, it's not like while I was in the depths of dealing with daily tantrums and overwhelming behaviors that I was like, oh, this is so valuable. I'm really learning right now. No, I was exhausted and I was burned out. It's you're able to look back. Evan's 19 now and we still have daily opportunities to practice this stuff, but I have enough perspective now of, of raising him for so long to go there is a reason that I had Evan. And if I can help even one person not feel alone, I talk to hundreds of thousands of people every year. And if I can help just one of them feel not alone in this journey, which is why I do it, um, then I feel like that's the reason. And so it, it, it doesn't make it any easier to cope with it, but it is a way to use it as a tool for growth. And I know you talk about perspective as someone who is, in their mid twenties and doesn't have as much life experience. Can you give some insight or tips to someone on how to, I guess, look at things objectively and find the perspective? Cause I know looking at things now sometimes is hard. Like when we were little, whenever we got upset, like we got upset with our full chest, we really were upset that someone stole our crowns or even just like growing up. I feel like you look back and you're able to look at things with perspective, but even now, when we're faced with challenges, when we get fired, when we get dumped, it's hard to look at things with that perspective when you feel so enraged and emotional. Yeah. My daughter is 20, soon to be 21. Um, so I could be your mom. Um, <laughs> and I don't know at what point I crossed that threshold where now I'm old. <laughs> no, but, um, no, I we'll I say wise. Like, You're very wise. Wise. That's the word we're going with tenure. Um, Yeah. So my daughter has struggled with her mental health and anxiety and depression. And so sometimes, you know, this is what I teach her. And this is what I would say to you and anybody around this age group is think about something. Well, one, you have to sit in the suck, right? Like we try when we try not to feel things, when we try to numb it with drugs or alcohol or food or whatever numbing device you have to not feel what you feel. It actually magnifies the feeling. So you feel it more intensely and you feel it for longer. So it might be comfortable if you get dumped to want to go have a few cocktails or to eat an entire pizza. But that 
only serves to magnify and intensify the difficult emotion. So while it sounds completely counterintuitive, you have to sit in the suck. You don't have to marinate it, but you have to let yourself feel what you're feeling and not beat yourself up for it. And if you have, if you've ever met someone who's toxically positive and they're like, turn that frown upside down, you have so much to be grateful for. I just want to punch them. Don't do that to people because then not only do they feel crappy, now they feel shame for feeling it. Right. So you have to give yourself permission. Emotions are nothing more than information for your nervous system. Your feelings are not facts. And so sometimes you have to push back and challenge those. But the other thing I would say is think about something that happened to you when you were younger that at the time seemed completely overwhelming, all encompassing. that You couldn't even imagine how you were going to survive another day through that experience. And then think about the fact that you're sitting where you are now and you survived it and you probably learned something from it. So it's not one of those things that you, while you're in the middle of the depths of despair, <laughs> you're go, you're extracting these lessons. It is understanding that with time and space and perspective, you will be able to. So it's just giving yourself the grace, the compassion and the space to not judge what you're feeling or beat yourself up for how and why you're feeling it but to just allow yourself to feel it. And that's uncomfortable. We don't like it, but that's your brain growing. I love that. I love that. Essentially being, com- well, not comfortable, but sitting with your feelings. Yeah. Getting comfortable, being uncomfortable. That's exactly what it is. It's developing a growth mindset, which for someone who's in their teens and twenties is in my mind, one of the most important skills you can learn. Um, Carol Dweck did some really great work on mindset and she identified that we're all on this continuum. You've got a fixed mindset and a growth mindset, and each of us are somewhere on this continuum in different areas of our life. So nobody's all of one or all of another, but I see a lot of young people with a fixed mindset, which is like, I have to prove my intelligence. I compare my success to everybody else's success. I look on Instagram and see everybody's perfect, you know, curated pictures. And I compare my insides to their outsides. Uh, I want to be perceived as smart, you know, like I'm just either an athletic person or I'm not. I'm either a math person or I'm not. And that's a very fixed mindset, this belief that our intelligence cannot be changed, which we know is not true. The growth mindset is how do I use fear as fuel? Why would I waste my time comparing myself to somebody else when I could expend the same amount of energy improving myself to be a better version of me tomorrow than I was today? Of course, I'm going to fail. That's how you learn, right? It doesn't make me any less smart that with effort and energy, I can improve these skills. So maybe I'm not the most athletic human in the world, but I can get better at it because it's just a skill. So I see a lot of kids, not kids, but I see a lot of teenagers and young adults who are so busy trying to prove themselves to be perceived as the best that they forget that their job is to just get better and to use that energy to improve themselves. And so I, I think that's something that I wish I, I wish folks knew. And I would suggest everybody read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. It's, it's fabulous. No, I love that because I agree with you in the sense that in school, we're not taught things like resilience, mental health, courage. And I think all of these are very, very important skills that unfortunately we learn through tough life lessons. And I know that had I been equipped with some of these skill sets, I feel like at an earlier age, I think I would have a better and healthier response as to how to go about different things. Yeah, I think you're right. We're not taught the socio-emotional skills and COVID has set everybody back. I mean, the, the levels of depression and anxiety in schools, both you know, middle, high school, college, postgraduate school, even the workforce right now, it's overwhelming. And one of the things that we don't teach and something that was really um, helpful for me to learn is that stress is just information. We assign judgment to it. We're like, oh, I feel so stressed out. That's awful. I shouldn't be stressed. That just makes you feel more stressed. The stress is just information. Like, how do you know you're stressed? Well, because your shoulders tense up. Maybe your neck gets tight. Maybe you have a stomach ache, right? That's just your body. That's just your nervous system giving you information, kind of telling you, okay, I'm bracing for impact. I've got a lot going on right now. My body's just toughening me up. Your heart rate increases that my, my brain needs more oxygen. That's what it's doing. And so there's a lot of research out there that shows that it's not like the stress that's bad for you. It's the way you perceive it. 
And so understanding that when you are activated, when you feel that huge emotion that seems overwhelming, it's just your body talking to you. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to change it. You don't have to do anything with it. You just have to acknowledge it and recognize it. It's just your body trying to talk to you, period. And that's the skill of mindfulness. It's paying attention on purpose to, like, I've done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy over the years, which is how do I identify the self-sabotaging thoughts or the unproductive thoughts that are keeping me stuck and reframe them? Super helpful, research-based and backed, absolutely needed. The other part of that, though, is that when you are in a stressed state, you can't access the higher level thinking needed to do that. So you have to do that when you're calm, when you're at peace, when you're calm, when you're feeling good. That's when you have to identify some of the self-defeating thoughts and how do I reframe them? Mindfulness is in the moment. It's catching your nervous system before it becomes a runaway train. Just because your stomach's tight and your shoulders are tense and you're sweating, it's just your body. That's it. It's just your body saying, hey, alert, something's going on right now. Alarm system doesn't have to be horrible. You don't have to assign judgment, but it's just your body telling you like, Hey, there's something happening right now. Pay attention to me. And mindfulness is the ability to do that without judging it, to just recognize it. And to your point, just accept it. It is what it is. My body's on high alert. Fortunately, slowing your breathing, taking deep diaphragmatic breaths can reset your nervous system. So it's, it's, you control your brain and body, not the other way around. Yeah, like you said, it really all goes back to perception. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know <laughs> I know you often talk about how to make stress work for you. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on the how. Yeah, so it's not easy. I'm a worrier, right? Like my fifth grade teacher on my report card told my parents if I didn't stop worrying so much, I'd have an ulcer by middle school. So <laughs> This is something I work at every single day, but the, the, the trick is, and the reason it works, for example, one way is meditation and it's not meditation is not the goal of focus, right? People say, just focus on your breath. That's not what meditation is. Meditation is the art of refocusing. Once you get distracted and bringing yourself back to your breath or your point of focus, whatever that might be. And the reason that works is because the more you do that, the more you grow the gray matter density in your brain that's degraded by stress. And the gray matter density is responsible for managing your attention, like make, helping you focus, helping you be more present, but it's also emotional regulation. It improves emotional regulation. So when you meditate and you teach yourself to refocus, you're able, when you start feeling that overwhelming feeling of stress, to center yourself and not get carried away by it. You're able to recognize it for what it is without it becoming catastrophic. So that's one way to really deliberately cultivate a habit that will help you absorb the stress. The other thing, and this was fascinating for me because it's super counterintuitive. The other thing is stop worrying about reducing stress because that primes your brain to think about more stress. Instead, and this sounds bizarre, Instead of reducing stress, cultivate joy. It has the same unintended side effect of reducing stress. But when you cultivate positive emotions intentionally, whether it's volunteerism or family time or a good book or whatever it is for you, when you are doing those things, you are signaling safety to your brain. So you're taking your brain out of a threat state and helping it repair and absorb the stressors differently. So those are two hows. (laughs) No, that's really, really interesting. And I really like what you said about meditating because I never thought about it. It's more so focusing on the act of bringing your focus back, which really makes sense. And once you adapt that skill set, it's a really, I can see that how that can be really beneficial in the long run. Yeah. And I meditate regularly and sometimes my mind wanders the whole time. Like it, that there's no perfect, that's why they call it a practice. It's the practice of refocusing your attention back to the present moment. And when you do that, you train your brain to go where you want it to go instead of where it goes on its own, which is only designed to keep you alive, not happy. Wow. 
That's really, really interesting. And I know we had talked a, a little bit about it, but mental illness is very prominent. In, it's a very prominent issue in today's climate. Statistically, nearly, I think it's one in five adults are dealing with a mental illness. And I know that you're very passionate about mental illness and that you donate a large proceeds of your books to, like you said, the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Central Texas. Can you share some advice or tips you might have learned or picked up to help people better communicate or interact with someone who is going through some mental health issues? So first I would say mental health is more than the absence of mental illness. Mental health is a set of skills and practices. Mental illness, it's estimated that half of all people, adults and children, will have a mental health issue in their lifetime. So, yes, the statistics are one in five adults and children, but the Surgeon General um, just came out with a report that said 76% of people reported having mental health challenges in the last year. So the statistics are widely varied, but we know it's more common than people like to admit. And so the one thing I would say is don't try to fix it. Like we have this tendency when people to come to us with a problem, we try to tell them how to fix it and make it better. And the best thing you can do is just listen and be present and say, I'm here for you, whatever you need, instead of, oh, you should try this or you should do this. Um, And feelings of anxiety are completely normal. It's feelings of sadness are completely normal. But as someone who's struggled with clinical depression my entire life. It's when that feeling is so prevalent in everything that you do, and it starts impacting your ability to live your life fully, to maintain relationships, to stay in school, to keep your job. When those feelings become so magnified that they start impacting your ability to function, that's when you need to go seek help. And ideally before it gets to that point, but there is no shame. Everyone should be in therapy. Every single human being should be in therapy. We need some way to objectively look at our situation. And that's what a third party can help you do. So I would say, one, don't try to fix it. Just be there. Um, None of this toxic positivity, turn that frown upside down, focus on what you're grateful for. That's not helpful. Um, But the other thing is just, you know, understanding that we all go through these ebbs and flows. And, you know, we had the news yesterday of Twitch, Ellen DeGeneres is, you know, the guy that did all the dancing and he he seemed so happy. He seems so amazing. He has three small children. He killed himself. You never know what's going on in somebody's mind. You never know where they are. So the other thing is just be kinder than you need to be because we're all going through something, right? So just be kind. It's, it's not that hard and it uses less energy than negative emotion. If someone cuts you off, so what? Right. Like we get so worked up about these little things and the amount of energy we expend to be angry and frustrated and have our feelings hurt sometimes is energy you cannot get back. So why not spend it trying to cultivate the emotions that you know are going to help you and recognize that we're all going through something. So be kind and be kind to yourself. If if you wouldn't say something to the five year old version of you then you sure as hell shouldn't say it to the adult version of you. Like I would not go to the five-year-old version of Anne and say, I can't believe you ate that. What is wrong with you? Why in the world would you send that email? That is so stupid. (laughs) I would never say that to five-year-old Anne, but I say it to 48-year-old Anne all the time or 47-year-old Anne all the time. So it's, it's starting to cultivate a kinder, more compassionate relationship with yourself because you can't give it to others until you allow yourself to do that. Wow. No, I think that's a really, really great example to really bring it all together. And it goes back to the notion of the fact that I feel like as adults, we really forget to tend to our inner child. And (laughs) I like that you said, like, if you wouldn't say it to your five-year-old self, chances are you probably shouldn't be saying it to yourself now. Yeah. Yeah. Not only would I not be friends with someone who talks to me the way I talk to me, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near them. I wouldn't let them in my life. I would say they were toxic. So you have to be, you have to catch yourself when you are sending yourselves these self-defeating messages because they just become a loop. They become a habit and we have to start shifting the messages. Now I'm not a big proponent. I know a lot of people love positive affirmations and, and I think they serve a purpose. They think they're helpful, but I think if you're 
in a place where you're ruminating and negative and stuck, just get to neutral. It is what it is. All I can do is all I can do. I'm stronger than this. I'll make it through. Uh, what can I learn? You know, tomorrow will be better. I'll figure it out, right? All of these are kind of neutral messages that don't try to make you feel bad for feeling the way you do, but they also allow you to shift the story you tell yourself, which is what shapes your neuro and biochemistry. Yeah, I definitely agree because I feel like once you're able to get to that neutral state, that's when then you can start hitting the ground and start actually trying to, I guess, cultivate an even more positive mindset and just going a step further, but it's just getting back to your essential base. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to look at it. And I feel like you can't really talk about resilience without also talking about ego, because I feel (laughs) like sometimes I think we let our ego get the better of us. It can cause us to lose touch with reality and inevitably force us to miss out on opportunities. And so I'm just kind of curious to know your thoughts on the matter. 100%. We're the ones in our own way, right? (laughs) And so the question I always ask myself when I start to feel that ego creep in, am I trying to be right or am I trying to get it right? Because I think sometimes we're so busy trying to prove ourselves to others or prove that we're right or get in these heated debates, right? And and you might technically be right, but is it going to get you closer to the outcome you want? And if not, you got to reevaluate your strategy, right? And so it's hard to take the ego out of it because that's a built-in neurological mechanism that serves to protect us. But when you can recognize and ask yourself, am I, am I struggling with this because I don't agree with it or because I'm worried I'll be embarrassed or look bad? That's when you have to start separating those out and not just assuming. That's why I said your feelings aren't facts. They're just information. And we have to start figuring out which ones are helping us and which ones aren't. Um, so I think ego is a huge part of this. Yeah, I really like that. It's basically looking at it from almost an objective point where you're trying not to let your emotions dictate your feel or yeah, let your emotions dictate your actions. That's mindfulness. That's what mindfulness is. It's starting like if you were a news reporter, let's say you're having a really crappy day and your shoulders are tight and your neck is tense and you've snapped at somebody close to you and you're just emotionally spent, right? Mindfulness is going, wow, you're, you've got a lot going on. You've got some really heavy, like imagine you're a news reporter reporting on that story. I'd be like, oh, this is Veronica. Veronica internally has some feelings of anxiousness and her emotions are feeling very overwhelming. That's interesting. I wouldn't judge you. I wouldn't be like, what is wrong with Veronica for feeling that way? I can't believe she feels that way. That's so stupid. She doesn't need to feel that way. She doesn't really have stressful stuff going on. You would never do that, right? So it's just starting to recognize in the moment what emotions you're choosing to listen to because our emotions shape our behavior. The stronger the emotion, the more it drives your behavioral response. Emotions are neurobiological, can't control them, but you can control what you do with them. And mindfulness is learning to just observe it without doing anything. Wow. Wow, that's really, that was really insightful. Um, now I know you mentioned this in your book as one of the workshop pages, and I thought it was a really nice question that I kind of wanted to ask you at what point in your life did you feel the most courageous and the least? Well, least courageous when Evan was little and his father, my husband left, and I was a single mom trying to navigate a child who had no diagnoses, but who was incredibly violent and aggressive. And I just felt broken. I felt absolutely broken. Um, Most courageous is at the exact same time because I kept going. I, instead of cratering because of that fear um, I kept going. I kept looking for answers. I, I have never given up trying to find solutions and treatments and ways to help Evan. And so for me, that it was the same moment, right? It was knowing that I felt broken, but keeping going. 
I mean, yeah, that's the definition of courage. It's no, it's not just doing something out of fear or it's essentially eliminating the fear, but doing something simply even when you are afraid or when you are scared, but choosing to still do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's what courage is. And that's a really great example of it. Yeah. Thank you. And I know that I hit you with some pretty thought-provoking and tough questions to end the podcast on a more lighter note. I'd like to know, this has become one of my favorite questions to ask my guests, but I'd okay. like to know what is one of your guilty pleasures? <laughs> well, I am obsessed with Law & Order SVU. Like I, I apparently I like my crimes heinous. Um, but I love the characters. I've watched every episode more than once. Um, I, I don't know what it is about that show, but my daughter and I, that's like our bonding time. We'll just put on reruns of Law and Order SVU and I could watch it for hours without ever getting up. And I just love Mariska Hargitay's character, Olivia Benson, um, like to the point where I want to name my next dog, Olivia Benson, but I just love the show. And so my guilty pleasure is I will, I will spend way too much time watching a show that has the exact same plot and storyline every single episode. And you know exactly what's going to happen. And I love it. Anyway. <laughs> I feel like I've, so I've never actually watched Law and o- Order, but I know it's iconic. Cause I mean, I feel like everyone knows the theme song. Dun, dun, doo, 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 That's my text <laughs> message alert, by the way. Is there? The, oh, so you are the a theme fan song fan. for Law and Order. Uh, Law and Order SBU is my ringtone, and the dun dun is my text message alert. <laughs> so I'm embarrassed to share it. I've never shared that on a podcast interview, but um, but yeah, that's that's one of my guilty pleasures. I've got plenty, but that that's one of them. No, that's a good one. I feel like that's a good one to have, <laughs> and I love that it's a moment that brings you and your daughter closer, so it makes it even better. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's the kind of thing you should bond over, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's become our like when we're having a tough day. It's the thing I miss the most when I'm traveling and not home. So it's the thing that makes me feel like home. So if I'm overseas at a, a speaking engagement, I'll I'll have recorded episodes that I can watch just because it's a piece of home. <laughs> and now I'm interested because you talk about your speaking engagements. You were a two-time TEDx speaker. Can you talk about that and uh, share with us for someone in? aspiring to talk at TEDx? Like what are some things that they could do to get into a position like that? So first, I think it's important to understand the difference between TED and TEDx. So TED is the um, the, the group behind these 18 minute talks that are meant to spread really phenomenal ideas throughout the world. TEDx are independently organized events that do this. And there are hundreds of them every year. Things you don't know about it, you don't get paid. They don't pay for your travel. It's not something that like, you know, it's it, it's not something that is um, unattainable. There are so many of them. You can apply at lots of different ones. Uh, you can you can apply for hundreds of them. Um, the first one I did, I have a dear friend who was already speaking for the group. It was here in Austin at St. Edwards and somebody dropped out at the last minute. And so I like quickly had to scramble and write a speech. The second one was in uh, St. Louis. It was TEDx Women at Peabody Opera House, 3,000 people. It was amazing. But that one I got asked to do. Um, So I would just say, if it's something that you want, one, what idea are you most passionate about? It has to be something that you've struggled with or that you have figured out or something that um, is unique to you that you have a story about because stories are the way we learn. Um, But... I, it was one of my bucket list things because I think most speakers at some point want to do that. It honestly didn't change much of anything. You know, it's not like every speaker has a Brene Brown breakout moment. So <laughs> it, it's wonderful to do them. It's a great experience. I've been asked to do some since and I've turned them down just because, you know, it, it's it, it's one of those things where once you've done it, it fills that need. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I think anybody can do them. And it's really just going... And looking online and finding where these independently organized events are. The other, the last thing I'll say about it that most people don't understand is that they each has a theme. So um, like the theme of my second one was it's about time. 
And so they bring in speakers and they say, we need you to develop a speech that ties into that theme. And they asked me to speak about resilience and so and strength. And so mine was, it's about time you recognize or you realize you're strong enough. And so my second book, Strong Enough, is based on that, that TED Talk. My new book, Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience, is like my, my favorite baby because it's really an expansion of this keynote that I give all over the world on, on these habits and skills that you can use to build resilience. So the first one, 52 Strategies for Life, Love, and Work, is also a, a good one because it's like a two and a half page strategy, one a week over the course of a year. So it's not overwhelming. It's just like little nuggets of information. And then of course you are holding up strong enough yeah. and uh, that's based on, on the TED talk. But so your new book, Mind Over Matter, which basically- Mind Over Moment. Oh, sorry. Your new book, Mind Over Moment. Oh my gosh, I can't speak. Your new <laughs> book is all about harnessing the power of resilience. Can you share with us what people can expect by reading your new book? So everybody gets the title wrong, which makes me realize I should have titled it differently, but it's mind over moment. And it's this belief that we, life is a collection of moments, right? And it's our job to savor the beautiful ones and know that the bad ones are going to pass, but it's to make deliberate decisions in the moment of how we want to behave, how we want to feel. So when you read it, it's broken down into that framework that I talked about, your mindset, your skill set, and your ability to reset. And I go um, into depth around the how. You know, these are great concepts in theory, but how do you practice them? And throughout, I scatter my own personal stories and funny examples of how I have failed miserably at some of these things. And so it's it's meant to be inspiring, and um, but also really practical and actionable. And that's why there's a journal that goes with it that was illustrated by a special education teacher, because it's a way to put into practice all of these skills that we talk about in the book. Yeah, I mean, you do a really, really great job of bringing your personality to the book, because I know when I was reading uh, strong enough, I there were times, like I said, I was laughing, I was crying just because you really make it very easy to relate and resonate with you. And the, the stories that you share are just so transparent and vulnerable. And I really, really appreciate you putting yourself out there in such a space in a way for people to be able to connect. That's the only way we start improving ourselves is to know we're not alone, right? Everybody feels very, everyone feels alone. Loneliness was an epidemic in the United States, at least before COVID ever happened. And more people die every year of loneliness than they do high blood pressure, obesity, or smoking. So my goal is to write like I talk because I don't want to be some academic in a journal that, you know, is, is, I write like I speak because um, I want it to be relatable, but I want it to be actionable. I love reading, but I hate when I read this uplifting, inspiring book and then can't do anything with the information. So that's why I try to really make it very actionable. So here's the skill. Here's how I practice it and just simplify it. No, I really, really like that. And to close off, one question I want to ask you is what do you think makes you stand out from everyone else? What's something that makes you above the mean? Oh, that's such a good question. I think I have gotten to the point in my life where I no longer try to be someone else. Uh, I spent a lot of time trying to be the speaker, the trainer, the mother, the wife, the daughter that I thought I was supposed to be. And it's exhausting. It's so exhausting trying to worry so much about what everybody thinks that you're trying to behave and act in a way that meets that definition. And I'm grateful that I had those experiences because it taught me who I don't want to be, right? I want to be authentically me. And you'll see a lot of speakers get on stage and they're rah-rah and they're performative and they're bigger than the world. And, and that's great. And they do well. But I show up as me. I'll swear on stage. I will bear my soul on stage. I will tell you all about my crazy life because we all have crazy and we all know crazy. And so we're not alone. But yeah, I mean, I think I think what makes me unique as a speaker, at least, is that there's a formula for creating a successful experience for people. And that formula is you've got to have story. Story is the way we learn. Uh, and we relate. You've got to have statistics and research and data to back it up because you want 
to know that what you're learning is right and true and that there's research to support it. But then you've also got to have strategy. You've got to have things that people can go do as a result. And so I've seen lots of speakers have great strategies and no stories or lots of statistics and and stories, but no strategies. Um, And so I try to like combine those three things and, and create an experience where people do feel uplifted and inspired, but they also have something they can go do as a result. And I think it's great. You've done an amazing job at that. And thank you. thank you so, so much. This was a really, really great conversation. And I loved it because I felt like it honestly flowed, um, which worked out perfectly for me. I didn't even really need to go through my questions just because talking to you is just so entertaining and engaging. So I really, Aww. really thank you for coming on. Well, you asked wonderful, insightful questions. This was a a wonderful interview. I appreciate the opportunity to share it and to meet you and to connect. Um, And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season and a happy, healthy new year filled with delicious moments. Thank you. And you as well. And where can people reach out and find you if they want to connect or be a part of the different organizations that you are? So my website and Grady Group dot com is a great place. I have hundreds of articles. Everything's free, hundreds of articles and resources and all kinds of stuff for folks there. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel at Ann Grady Group and follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, the only thing I'm not on yet is TikTok. And I I, I know that's the wave of the future, but I'm, <laughs> I'm holding out as long as I can. I'm like, I'm like my mom going, I don't know how to use that stupid app. Um, <laughs> so that's the one I'm not on yet, but I'm on everything else. TikTok really is just kind of surging. I, I went home this past break for Thanksgiving and I'm probably even when I go home for Christmas, my dad's always asking you want to make a TikTok together. Like he doesn't even understand how TikTok works, but he thinks that he should be like the prime person, all my TikTok videos. And he's just like, I'll do a dance. So TikTok is one of those I was holding out, but it's just, it's great. And I feel like now it's become like a search engine. People almost use it as if they use Google. Huh? Well, and then I'm going to have to look into it. But, <laughs> um, but for now, I'm going to stick with the, the channels I know. If you're interested in in any of my books, you can get them on Amazon. And we, like I said, we donate a portion of all those proceeds. And I, I do free events for mental health and charities and Ronald McDonald House, because that's where we lived for two months while Evan underwent treatment. So um, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are out there as free resources. Berkeley also has something called the Greater Good Center. And they have a lot of great material on their website about all of these topics that we've talked about. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope Anne's wise words of wisdom. Wow, that that's alliteration at its finest. Anne's wise words of wisdom helped you in some way, shape or form. You can find links to her page as well as her books in the description section. Like I had mentioned in the intro, I've been doing a lot of reflecting and really in my head lately. And you'll hear me go much more in depth about this revelation that I came to as well as my insight into the kind of shift I plan to make with the podcast in the upcoming months. I'm super excited to share everything with y'all. So make sure to tune in next week. I also have a very special Valentine's Day episode for y'all that I'm extremely, extremely excited about. So definitely stay tuned for that as well. And as always, remember, don't settle for average. Rise above the mean and stand out.